I think that socially and culturally is accepted that women are going to stay up all night, feeding the baby, change the baby, or waking up multiple times during the night. And the next day, they're just going to function as if nothing happened. Culturally, is accepted this way. But yeah. we know that physiologically, that's not what is happening. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Crab and the Cross podcast. I'm your host, Mary Rose, and my guest today is Dr. Carly R. Weiss. She is a professor, researcher, and clinician in the field of sleep science, and we have a fascinating conversation about the science of sleep, the cognitive benefits and detriments to getting enough sleep, um, the gender differences when it comes to sleep, and so much more. I know it might seem a little off-brand to be talking to a sleep scientist um, since most of my interviews have been about faith and the spiritual life, but first of all, it's the crab and the cross, so nothing is off-brand. Second of all, Dr. Weiss is also a practicing Catholic, and we have a really interesting conversation towards the end about some of the moral and spiritual implications regarding sleep, uh, including what scripture has to say or reveals to us about sleep, so definitely stick around towards the end. I think my dream behind having a podcast is just having the ability to sit at the feet of somebody who is way more educated than myself and to just ask them one question after another. And so this dream was totally fulfilled with Dr. Weiss because she is a wealth of knowledge. And I'm super interested in health sciences, um, whether it's sleep or diet or exercise. So it was so fun to just uh, have her unpack some of her knowledge. So if you enjoyed this conversation, make sure you are subscribed to the podcast. Many listeners are listening without subscribing. Second of all, make sure you're following me on Instagram or Twitter or subscribe to my YouTube channel. And if you are feeling generous, please leave me a written review in Apple Podcasts. And now here is my conversation with Dr. Carliara Weiss. Dr. Carliara Weiss has over 15 years of experience as an adult geriatric nurse with a master's in science of healthcare and a PhD in nursing, focusing on behavioral sleep medicine and circadian rhythms. Originally from Brazil, Dr. Weiss earned a bachelor's in nursing science, bachelor's in education, and completed medical surgical training and a master's degree at the Federal Fluminense University, Nitora, Rio de Janeiro. After eight years as assistant professor and clinician assisting adults and elderly patients in hospitals, nursing homes, hospices, and private practices, Dr. Weiss moved to the United States where she earned a PhD and postdoctoral training in sleep and circadian rhythms at the State University of New York at Buffalo. Dr. Weiss is a member of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine, Sleep Research Society, and participates in professional developmental workshops, including cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia and circadian rhythm uh, sleep disorders and clinical studies. Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much for having me, Mary Rose. I'm so happy to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. I'm very passionate about the topic of sleep. I'm always trying to understand 
myself in this regard. I don't know. It seems like I, I remember maybe 15 years ago, I had a friend sleep over and she just, she's like, yeah, I just close my eyes and fall asleep at night. It takes about five minutes. And I was like, wait, there are people like that who just fall asleep when they want to. <laughs> like I have to have the whole routine and then I'll lay in, sometimes I'll even lay in bed for, you know, 30, 45 minutes, just kind of like hoping to drift off. And so I'm very curious to find out some of the biology behind these, these sleep differences. Yes. Yes. I'm happy to share that. So you started out in a nursing career. How did you decide to pivot towards focusing on sleep? So as a nurse, um, my clinical approach to treat sleep disorders were medication, right? So uh, if a patient is not sleeping well, so let's see what medication can we um, get for this patient to make sure that they sleep better. And um, knowing that sleep is an important component for recovery. So if the patient's not sleeping well, something is wrong. Right. You need to make sure that the patient's going to sleep. But as I progress into my career from clinical to master's to PhD, I realized that um, there is more that we can do than rather than giving a medication. And sometimes the medication is not is just knocking somebody out, not really making them sleep. Mm -hmm. So um, that was an important tr uh, transition for me. And also learning how... Um, sleep disturbances are usually the first sign that something else is wrong. Oh, really? Yes. So, for example, my my area of research is sleep and cognition. So, dementia, uh, memory impairment. So, at least 10 years before somebody has an Alzheimer's diagnosis, they're going to be having sleep disturbances. Wow. Right? I had no idea. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's why it's important for me as, as a scientist mm -hmm. and as a nurse as well mm -hmm. to not just give a medication, but investigate what is happening there right. and why the person is not sleeping well and how we can help, help the person to actually fall asleep and stay asleep, not just knocking them out with medication. Right. Okay. So initially you were giving them, was it you know, things like Ambien or those other like sleep medications that just totally wipe you out? <laughs> yes. Yes. Some benzodiazepines, yeah. uh, the classic benzodiazepines and um, making sure that they would sleep, quote right. unquote. And then what I noticed with, especially, especially with the older adults is that the level of memory impairment and confusion, and even sometimes delirium, um, would increase with those medications. So it was really not, they were not sleeping properly hmm. because sleep gives the opportunity for the brain to recover from all this um, damages and accumulations that we have during the day, right? And then if we're sleeping well, we're going to have a sharp brain the next day, sharp memory. And I was not seeing that with my older patients. So wow. I have to investigate that. Wow. When you say like damages that happen during the day, what is that referring to? So we are referring mostly to inflammation. Okay. Neurodegeneration also. Hmm. So as we grow older, we become more exposed to 
um, more more at risk to have accumulation of some um, molecules in the brain that are causing neurodegeneration, such as wow. beta amyloids. Okay. Beta amyloids is the famous one, but we have many others with um, very different biochemistry behind them. But uh, we can call those um, uh, biomarkers for neurodegeneration, right? So our body comes with this uh, protective system that's called glymphatic system. Mm-hmm. Happens in the brain that only works when we are sleeping. I, wow. So like 95% of the glymphatic function happens during sleep. So if we're sleeping well, we can have, our brain has the mechanism to clean out all these uh, molecules that cause brain degeneration. And if you're not, we accumulating that over time. So um, we are more likely to have uh, Parkinson's disease, Alzheimer's, wow. or other types of dementia. Wow. So can this even start happening at a young age, or is it mostly in elderly patients? That actually starts at a young age. So some studies are looking at 45 years old, others are looking at 50 years old, and then the person is not going to have dementia until they are 70. So, wow. Yes. Wow. (laughs) And that's only one aspect of Mm -hmm. the how sleep is important. It always also affects um, hormone regulation, our immune function, and so many others, right? Right. Yeah, because I noticed like when I don't get a good night's sleep, I mean, obviously you wake up tired, but I also feel nauseous and I feel like I can't like not even just focus mentally, but focus my vision, you know? (laughs) Yes, yes. So um, glucose um, and uh, how we uh, regulate hunger and satisfaction, all those hormones are also affected by sleep. So it's not a coincidence, for example, if somebody uh, don't sleep well and the next day they are craving fast food. Hmm. Right? Because there's dysregulation of the hormone levels to tell the brain that they are actually satisfied with the food and that they don't need more food. Really? So, yes. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, for example, if you look at night shift workers uh, in um, diabetes, in um, being overweight, that happens, uh, that has a high incidence among this population, it's actually because they're not sleeping well and they're not sleeping at the time that they're supposed to be sleeping and then the hormones are out of sync. Wow. Is there any way around that for people who do work? You know, I mean, you were a nurse, like obviously we need overnight shift nurses. Is there any way around that? Yes, yes. That's why behavioral sleep medicine is so important instead of just giving medication Mm -hmm. because we can adjust their sleep and wake schedule and have some um, interventions, for example, with bright light therapy at a certain time of the day to help their circadian rhythm works in the best way to compensate for that night they are doing uh, work. Wow. So are these like special lamps um or is it just a use of you know regular indoor light those are special lamps and we can also use glasses as well okay yeah because i've seen the well the red light therapy is becoming really popular now and and some people are saying they 
they do the they look at the red light in the morning and then they wear the blue blockers at night and it you know I wondered if that's just sort of a marketing thing or if it actually works. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of studies for that and actually for my PhD um, project, my project was using bright light therapy okay. for older adults that had had uh, lung cancer oh. and they had severe cases of insomnia and their biological clock is just not working properly. So I used uh, bright light therapy to resynchronize that and help them sleeping better. But then the uh, other outcomes were better quality of life, better uh, mood, better memory, participating more with the family activities. So it's very, um, it's a very impactful tool for sleeping circadian rhythms. Yeah. So when you are are doing those studies on on patients, how are you measuring, um, I guess, their their biomarkers to see? I mean, obviously, they, they can report like, oh, I feel more rested. But like, what biomarkers are you measuring to see like how it's actually working? So I, I collect blood from them. Okay. And I look at the serum levels of those biomarkers. And we have other non-invasive ways to look at this, those biomarkers too, and also overall uh, reports. So we can ask the patients, for example, to fill out sleep diaries for all the study. So we can monitor how the sleep changes happen before the intervention, during and after the intervention. We also have surveys and computer-based tests that we can do before and after the intervention. And lately, we've been using um, uh, actigraphy and Fitbit. So we can monitor the patient every day and see how the progress is going for them. Okay. Wow. So how long would it take for patients to regulate them? Like, how long did you have to do the interventions? Or is it just a permanent, you know, for the rest of their life? (laughs) It, It really depends on what is the target that we have. So for bright light therapy, the minimum that we need is six weeks. Okay. Wow. The minimum is six weeks. So, um, to have that, uh, with a person that for example, lives in New York, like, like I leave that we have great days for months. Um, this person's probably going to need more during the winter. Right. So there's all those considerations and other interventions uh, such as cognitive behavioral therapy. The minimal also would be around six to 10 weeks. Uh, Some people may need more than that, but um, we can work with that minimum. Okay. Yeah, because I think a lot of people think like, okay, if I just kind of get a good night's sleep a few nights in a row, I'll I'll get back on track. Um, But it sounds like it needs a lot more time than that. Yes, yes. And that's the challenge between um, prescribing medication and doing behavioral sleep therapy, because yeah. it the uh, medication, you see the effect in the first night. Um, but with behavioral changes, uh, depends so much in our willpower to desire to do those changes. Yeah. But the effects last longer than a medication and they are they have fewer side effects than taking a medication and you don't become dependable on taking a pill to sleep better. Right. So is that then where the cognitive behavioral therapy comes in is kind of getting them to will to 
rearrange their life to make these changes? Yes. And, and then we also can work to understand their behavior and see which behavior we can actually change. Because mm -hmm. I cannot just say, these are the recommendations for you to sleep better. Mm -hmm. This, 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 and this. And they, they're going to tell me, well, this one doesn't really work for me, mm -hmm. but this one can work. So yeah. let's focus on this one that can work and see how that goes. Yeah. Yeah, because I'm sure everybody has seen those those lists, you know, eight tips to to get a great night's sleep or or whatnot. And 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 I mean I know for myself too, like it all makes sense to me, you know, have the nighttime routine, don't use the phone, you know, yes. et cetera, et cetera. But then when it kind of comes down to implementing it, you know, you just sort of say, Well, you know, I don't know, you know, some things aren't a big deal. Um, well, actually, one thing I want to ask you about is when I see those lists of like sleep tips, a lot of times they say don't eat too close to bedtime. Um, mm -hmm. But for me, I notice like, let's say I cut off eating at like eight o'clock or something, I'll get in bed at like 11 and I'm hungry. <laughs> and then I can't fall asleep until I eat something. So I know you mentioned like there's the this glucose effect, like with sleep. Is it I don't know, in your experience, does it hold true that like, you really shouldn't eat too close to bedtime or is it very dependent upon the person? Is That is true that we should not eat with, uh, close to bedtime, but we need to use this behavioral sleep approach to understand what it close means to you. Mm, okay. So I cannot say that you should stop eating after 8 p.m. If you go to bed at 11 or midnight, mm -hmm. that's not too close to bedtime. You okay. can you can eat a little later than that. Okay. So that's the that's the trick. We need to understand uh, the patient and really work to tailor the intervention that we do that is best for them for their schedule. So. With that, it's not going to be a burden for them to make changes. It's going to just feel natural. Right, right, yeah. So in your work now, are you conducting research still, or are you, are you mainly seeing clients, like one-on-one? -on -one? I'm conducting studies okay. most of the time and teaching as well. Okay. So, yeah, so um, I'm now in a, a faculty position at the, the um, State University of New York here in Buffalo. and um, I have my research focus on that, um, um, looking at how the brain works with sleep deprivation or sleep disturbances and how we can use sleep to prevent cognitive impairment and dementia. Mm. Right? So um, with this research, I'm looking at um, older veterans uh, right now, but my goal is to expand to a, a broad population and I'm looking at veterans because with the stress and the training that they have, most of the research that we have around veterans says that cognitive impairment starts around 45 years old mm -hmm. rather than 60. That would be the general population. Yeah. So um, they served our country and they did so many for us. And we have to do something to help them live in better. Right. right? So that's why I'm looking at veterans at this time, but uh, with the goal to expand into different populations of older adults and um, also make sure that we include a um, diverse sample because we have different social and economic 
impacts in a sleep as well. Right. right. So that's the goal. I'm working more. Um, I'm focusing on research right. and teaching. Okay. Okay. So with the veterans, I mean, uh, do many of the ones you work with have, you know, traumatic, you know, PTSD or other traumatic experiences that also are affecting their, their quality of sleep? Unfortunately, yes. Wow. Yeah, unfortunately, yes. They they had those experiences. I, I, I work with uh, Vietnam veterans, so um, that is an unfortunate part of their work. And now, so many years later, we we find ways to help them overcome those those problems and hopefully sleep well so they can age well. Yeah. I've heard that with um, at least some forms of Alzheimer's, there's like certain genes that are related to it. Do you find that um, if you can have these early sleep interventions that can almost like deactivate those genes or is there a certain amount of determinism that that's always going to be there? So the way that I like to look at this approach with the genes for um, Alzheimer's disease and even with the biomarkers that we have for Alzheimer's disease is make a comparison with breast cancer, right? So we have breast cancer screening now that um, even if you don't have anybody in your family, you can request a breast cancer screening and check if you have the genes that would increase your risk to develop breast cancer. And then there is a list of interventions that we can do to prevent that from happening, Mm. right? So with Alzheimer's, although the research is very in the beginning stages right now, we hope to do the same thing. I hope that by looking at those biomarkers and even to the genetic markers, early on, we can create interventions to help the brain recover and stay on a better state um, to prevent dementia from happening in the future. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of wild to me that we, we, I mean, once you turn a certain age, you do the breast cancer screenings, you screen for colon cancer, other things like that, but there's no regular investigation into people's sleep. That's just considered like you take care of that and, and we'll do the like internal imaging or, or things like that. Yes. Yes. <laughs> it, it's something that, um, me and some other colleagues, th- that's something that we want to change. Mm-hmm. We want to incorporate sleep in those categories for screening and then um, having interventions early on and prevent some other problems from happening. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So l- uh, let's get a little bit into the science of sleep. So you said that you studied the circadian rhythm. So can you first just explain what the circadian rhythm actually is? Yes, so the circadian rhythm is this two, about 24-hour cycle that our body goes through, and it uh, incorporates sleep and wakefulness. And everything that is associated with our body that needs to help happen during wakefulness and everything that needs to happen during sleep. For example, um, we need to be alert during the day and we need to have some hormone regulations that help us to stay awake during the day, like cortisol. Mm-hmm. And for sleeping, we rely on melatonin to help us uh, understand when it's time to fall asleep. And also because of melatonin increasing in the system, other hormones are going to be regulated uh, to help with 
um, uh, glucose uh, rhythm or even with um, cell growth. So we have these differences in this 24-hour cycles that help us to stay awake and be functioning better during awakefulness and also fall asleep, but all the regulations that need to help happen during the sleep cycle as well. Okay. So I assume like there's probably some point in the evening when everyone's melatonin is supposed to rise and then some point in the morning where the cortisol is supposed to supposed to spike. Is this um is there an ideal distance between like the time you want to go to bed and the time your melatonin is supposed to supposed to rise? Yeah, so we start detecting melatonin about 16 hours after we wake up. Okay. So uh, that would be the initial level or tipping point that we can start detecting higher levels of melatonin in the blood. And ideally, we would start planning to go to sleep at a later time, right? So the peak for melatonin is around 3 a.m., Oh, okay. Wow. So it's going up even as you're already asleep. Yes. Yes. So, um, and then melatonin start dramatically going down and cortisol start going up. So right in the morning around 7 a.m. is when we see a dramatic change in cortisol levels going up. So they, they have this, um, um, flip switch with, between them, um, and it's ideal that over the 24-hour cycle, they keep doing this mm-hmm. uh, without much intervention from the exterior. But that's the perfect scenario, right? right. Like we know that our uh, circadian rhythm, the biological clock, has influence from the environment also. So we need to adjust how we have our schedules and everything to help them work in the best way possible. Right. So ideally, is it supposed to be that when melatonin is at its highest, cortisol is at its lowest and vice versa? Or are they kind of, are they not perfectly aligned in that way? No, they they should go, one is up, one is down. They should go in that um, switch. Okay. So then the patients that you are studying right now or in some of your PhD research, when it comes to, you know, nighttime, What's going on with them? Is their melatonin low? Is their cortisol high? Is it both? Are there other biomarkers that you're noticing? Yeah, so they do have high levels of cortisol mm-hmm. uh, during the night. And it can be because, A, they have a chronic disease that is affecting their uh, uh, stress level. And then they they become more anxious at night and their cortisol level goes higher. Uh B, they have low melatonin because as we go older, our melatonin levels decrease naturally. Oh, really? Yes. That seems, that seems like the opposite of what you'd want to happen. I mean, is there any, yeah. like, I don't know, evolutionary reason why you think that might happen? Um, Not exactly. Uh, It's just similar to other things like menopause that mm, okay. the hormones change because okay. we're getting older and that is not really other explanation other being older okay yeah so (laughs) yeah so they have higher cortisol lower melatonin levels and pain um depression Mm. other things that also affect the sleep or uh sometimes they just need to use the restroom more often during the night and that disturbs the sleep as well Mm. 
So we need to work with all those um, um, those components to help them sleep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if somebody has to wait, you know, just wakes up naturally to use the bathroom in the middle of the night, is I mean, <laughs> is there really a way around that, or, or you know, do you just have to adjust when you consume water? We can adjust when consume water, but we can also make some observations. For example, if they um, older adults or pregnant women, they have to go to the bathroom to, they need to urinate during the night, but it doesn't mean that they should be lying in bed for 30 minutes or 40 minutes to fall asleep again, right? right? That's what we can work. Okay. How we can we can decrease that time that they are tossing and turning in bed before they fall asleep again. Okay, that makes sense. Um, and are you able to, like, do you have people coming into a lab and they're hooked up to machines like all through the night and you're able to check their hormone levels through the night or is it more just brain waves? We can do that. Yeah. We can totally do that. Um, my current approach is everything at home. Okay. Okay. So we can do this uh, overnight sleep study at home, but what my preference is that um, we monitor the patient with minimal invasive uh, um, approaches at the at the most for when they are at home. That's why using uh, smart watches like Fitbit that has a sleep component give me a good perspective of their sleep while they are at home. Um, but of course, we can bring them to the lab. We can do some other assessments at home as well. Okay. Yeah, because I always wondered that, like, if, I mean, if I were to have to go into, you know, this this medical facility and be hooked up to machines, I don't think I would sleep well at all, you know? I feel like it would throw off the experiment. Exactly. Exactly. It Help, happens with many, many people that uh, you are in a different sleep environment. You You have so many tubes and... Um, things hook up to you that you simply can't sleep. Right, right. <laughs> then you're like, can I roll over? Am I going to mess the whole thing up? Yeah. Yes. So is there, you talked about circadian rhythm. Is everybody on the same circadian rhythm or is there really a such thing as like night person, morning person, or are, are night people just people who are all messed up? <laughs> <laughs> no, we have morning person. We have uh, evening person. We have people who are intermediates that they're not really morning or really evening. Mm-hmm. And our circadian rhythm uh, has those different changes too. Mm-hmm. So does that mean that you're kind of boxed in to a certain extent? Like if you have this natural tendency can you sway it the other way can you become more of a morning person if you're naturally more of a night or evening person yes we can do that with uh behavior sleep medicine we can adjust our biological clock to work on an earlier time or a later time with some changes in our behavior wow um have you noticed any differences between men and women when it comes to their sleep patterns Yes. So um, women and men have sex-based differences when it comes to sleep. So um, for example, women, we have menstrual cycles, right? And then the differences in the hormones during the menstrual cycle affect our sleep. 
during the um, uh, later phase of our uh, menstrual cycle, when progesterone is higher, we're more likely to have uh, insomnia and overall sleep disturbances because of a rise in our body temperature mm. that is caused by progesterone. So, um, so PMS usually happens during that time too, and sleep difficulties are more likely to be observed during that time. And then uh, with menopause, we have also a decline in progesterone, declining in estrogen that affects the sleep too. So, uh, and then comes hot flashes, mm -hmm. all this that affect the sleep too. And overall, women spend more time doing a stage three sleep. That is a deep sleep stage with me more memory consolidation. Hmm. So, yeah, wow. it's very... <laughs> yeah so that's very interesting we we tend to see those changes becoming more um um like easier to identify when women and men hit their 30s okay so uh even though teenagers may experience uh pms and all that but if you compare to the male at the same time at the same age they still sleeping basically the same, but around 30 years old, that's when the difference become very, very intense. Oh my gosh. That's so interesting. Um, so with, with women, yeah, we have these like temperature, you know, drops and spikes. Um, should, should we be like just turning the AC on like when we're in that second half of our cycle or, you know, is, is that, is it mainly just a temperature regulation thing that can be easily solved? Yeah. So the temperature regulation is driven by hormone. Mm -hmm. So um, there's a recommendation, especially for women in um, reproductive years, mm -hmm. that they um, understand their menstrual cycle, see that something is out of sync with the menstrual cycle. If they have a short luteal phase, for example, if they um, have an ovulation in a period that happens less than 14 or 16 days, they should be checking that. So mm. with some hormone supplementations that usually is um, progesterone that we supplement and okay. helps them maintain a more stable menstrual cycle. So then they can adjust their sleep with less uh, burden because the menstrual cycle is more stable, okay. right? Okay. But of course, we can make some behavioral changes also. So okay. um, sometimes I recommend um, if you zip with a blanket, put your feet outside of the blanket. So mm -hmm. it drops the temperature just a, li a little bit yeah. and you sleep better, right? Yeah. Or have the room tem temperature around 65. So it's not too cold, not too warm, and you can sleep better. Huh. That's so interesting. <laughs> but but the goal, though, you, I mean, I know with, like, people who track their cycles, like, there's these certain temperature, you know, drops that you look for. So the goal is not to have a completely, like, I guess, homeostatic temperature. You still want some fluctuation if you're a woman, right? Yes. Fluctuation is uh, normal and is desirable for women because we, we want to see those changes during um, – ovulation and during luteal phase, right? right? And if they become pregnant, the temperature is going to continue to rise after the luteal phase. But um, the thing is that if this the menstrual cycle is irregular, 
you, they're going to experience more sleep disturbances because there is a discrepancy in their hormones that drive the menstrual cycle. Okay. Wow. So you mentioned too that we said women, they spend more time in stage three of sleep. So can you explain what the different stages of sleep are? Yeah. So um, we have um, two big uh, clusters of sleep. That is the non-REM sleep without rapid eye mov movement and um, REM sleep with rapid eye movement. And during the non-REM sleep, we have three stages. Uh, stage one, that is a very light sleep. And then stage two, stage one is almost like a transition between being awake and falling asleep. And sometimes we just move and wake up from that. Uh, stage two is considered a more uh, in-depth sleep. And stage three is the deep sleep stage. So during stage two, uh, the way that we usually teach uh, is that uh during this stage, we see drops in dropping body temperature, dropping respiratory rate and cardiovascular rate, uh, and just helping the body relax, have muscle re relaxation, muscle repair happens in this time, uh, growth hormone is being more produced in this time, immune function is also being restored in this, is this stage. And then sleep stage three, that is the deep sleep stage, is um, helping the brain uh, recover more for memory consolidation, for emotional memory also in that stage, right? And then the, the, REM, the REM sleep stage is when we have intense brain activity that is almost similar to somebody being awake wow. where we don't have any, any muscle or a uh, reaction during this stage, just the eyes that keeps moving with the eyes closed most of the time. But we have intense memory and learning consolidation during this stage as well. And which of the stages are we actually dreaming during? Or are we dreaming during all of them? So mostly during REM sleep. Okay. But uh, some, some research, more recent research shows that during, during stage three, uh, we can also be dreaming. Okay. Okay. Um, so then with women who have given birth, like they are, I mean, they have to get up multiple times throughout the night to feed the baby, possibly mm -hmm. to change the baby. And of course, babies, I, I don't even know. We could talk about babies too. They probably have their own, you know, some of them sleep really well. Others yes. will not fall asleep. But how is it, I mean, are, are women like is there i don't know cognitive health suffering a lot during this time or are there any like protective measures that the body kind of does to mitigate all of this dis sleep disturbance so there's some interesting research about this right so um i think that socially and culturally is accepted that women are going to stay up all night feeding the baby change the baby or waking up multiple times during the night and the next day they're just gonna function as if nothing happened mm. right culturally is accepted this way but yeah. we know that physiologically that's not what is happening mm. they're just um their body is working to compensate for the sleep deprivation that they experience and um as i said some research says that we have some 
hormone regulations that happen during postpartum that help women to overcome that. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is a strong behavioral component to this that women um, accept that they need to do this and they just uh, accommodate their schedule for doing that, for providing for their babies when the baby needs them. Do you think that is uh, more of a contemporary cultural notion or, I mean, I, I don't know if, uh, if other, in t other time periods, maybe the women were less expected to like bounce back or, or take care of the home while they're, while they're new mothers. But do you have any insight into that? Um, I have an insight from that, not from a scientific perspective, okay. more from a cultural perspective. Mm -hmm. Uh, for example, for me coming from Brazil, we women are entitled six months of maternity leave. Wow. Six oh my gosh. Of, yeah. <laughs> six months of paid maternity wow. leave. Wow. Right? I have colleagues that live in Europe, like Netherlands, they have one year of paid maternity leave. Oh my goodness. Right. So that is more aligned with the physiological change that they go through and how much it takes for the baby to be in a sleep schedule and then for the mom to adjust their sleep schedule. Okay. Right. And here we have six weeks. If, 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 yeah, that's, I yeah. mean, you're lucky. You're lucky. I mean, maybe you get six weeks unpaid, but. Yes, you know, I, I, <laughs> I was so, a teacher and like my sister was a teacher. And I mean, maybe maybe two weeks, you know, you can technically get, you know. <laughs> yes. So like it's not that women are ready to go back. They have to go back. Yeah. Right? Right. So they, they have to go back. So we are forcing women to work with sleep deprivation and to fight and find mechanisms to compensate for sleep deprivation. Right. But that's very much a cultural perspective rather than a physiological perspective. Mm -hmm. Our physiology, our physiology will catch up to that right. eventually. Right. But right. Yeah. What, what are the consequences of that? I mean, other than just being tired and not, you know, being probably the most happy person. Like, what are some of the other consequences of, you know, a woman who's postpartum, who's still regulating her sleep with her baby's sleep like what are some of the consequences of her trying to function as she did you know prior to that yeah so we have some um immediate consequences for example um they're more likely to get into a car accident oh wow <laughs> yeah because <laughs> the reflex is diminished right the reaction time is diminished so they're more likely to have uh accidents they're, they have memory impairment that we usually say, oh, she has baby brain. Mm -hmm. uh, we do have some changes that happen in the brain because of pregnancy, uh, but being forgetful um, doesn't mean that it's just a ba baby brain. You know, you're not sleeping well to make a memory consolidation or learning consolidation. So those, those things um, uh, we can observe in women. But it's, again, like we have so many cultural um, perspectives that say that women need to go back and need to be sharp and need to keep the ball rolling. Yeah. And it's, it's complicated because we expect in them and we often say bounce back. Right. But they're not the same person. You know, they should be giving 
grace and opportunity to adjust to their new life without that being a burden. Right. Well, I mean, I wonder too, even though for like women who don't have like a professional job, they, they are stay at home moms, you know, if they have four or five kids and then they have a newborn, it's probably tough even just to bounce back to the normal routine of taking care of the kids, taking care of the house and, and all of that. Exactly. And some studies that look at a, a timeline for when they're going to be back into the uh, pre-baby sleep stages, right? So it takes about six months for that, six months to a year. Hmm. And that's not accounting for working and being professional or businesswomen. It's just telling yeah. them physiologically, it takes about six months to to have your sleep to be the same as it was before the baby. Yeah. Do you do women have a higher incidence of dementia and Alzheimer's? Um, some studies show more women and some studies show more men. Okay. Um, depends on the the age range that they use and also depends on the uh, ethnicity. Mm-hmm. So some there's the data is is a little um uh has both sides, let's say like this. The data demonstrate both sides. Some data demonstrates more men, some data demonstrate more women. Okay. Wow. Okay. Well, I just have one more question about sleep, and then I just want to spend a couple minutes at the end talking about kind of the the Catholic and spiritual piece of all of this. Um, but you know, everybody wants the quick fix, the solution, the pill, you know, and, and I see all of these supplements marketed, whether it's melatonin, whether it's um uh, what's what's that the active ingredient in green tea or the one of the active ingredients in green tea or um l-theamine L- Magne- l-theanine yeah yeah things like magnesium i mean is there is there any fix found in a bottle is there any supplement that you actually would use in your clinical practice like as you're helping people re-regulate their circadian rhythm so i'm actually doing research in one uh supplement mm-hmm. That is a form of vitamin B3 oh. that can helps can help the the biological clock or the circadian rhythm to work better. Hmm. So hopefully we'll have some results for you soon. This hmm. so uh, vitamin B3 is uh, important for the biological clock. So the actually brain structure that helps understand when it's daytime, when it's nighttime, and communicates to the rest of the body that is daytime or nighttime, and that's time for this hormone to be regulated or for that function to be working, mm-hmm. right? So um, I'm working on research for that. Uh, but of course we have um, magnesium and um, melatonin that is is not a supplement, it's a hormone, but it's oh, sold. okay, okay. Right? Um, those, uh, we have research on melatonin and magnesium that demonstrate that they help uh, is sleeping better, uh, especially for specific conditions. For example, shift workers, if they take melatonin at a specific time, help them um, sleep better and have a better functioning for their biological clock or their circadian rhythms. Uh, what is important to say is that if we go for our, our day without a set schedule, eating at crazy times, eating mm-hmm. unhealthy food, 
not exercising at all, and then we take a melatonin and expect to fall asleep and mm. stay asleep during the night, it's not going to work. Okay. Right? It's the same thing for other supplements as well. So uh, they're not going to um, overcome the other components that are missing for the sleep pattern. Uh, and that's something that I, I think that most people will struggle with yeah. because they expect that, okay, I'm going to be in front of my computer for 16 hours right. and I'm going to shut my computer, take a melatonin, I'm going to fall asleep. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and that's not going to happen. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. So one of the questions I want to ask you is just regarding like, you know, when someone's trying to grow in virtue, you know, they're trying to get all their habits in order, trying to grow in holiness. But I think maybe, I don't know if it's an American thing, but I, I know like me and a lot of my friends, we talk about how we feel very selfish when we're trying to prioritize our sleep, when we're trying to prioritize our health. And it feels like we are kind of being self-focused, you know, versus others focused. So I'm wondering, like, what are your thoughts on the connections between, you know, sleep and, and holiness and self-care and like when does it really become this self-indulgent thing versus when is it just you know being responsible and in, in, in loving yourself in a, in a proper way uh, I love this question because it's something that I try to communicate lately and it's just um so difficult in our culture to communicate that mm -hmm. uh, because as you said it comes out as being selfish mm -hmm. right um but if you think if we think about our bodies as temple of the holy spirit mm -hmm. we need to be doing the best that we can to take care of this temple mm -hmm. right and um sleep is part of a physiological function that god designed us for yeah. just like breathing <laughs> right right <laughs> It's not like a, a consequence of the fall, like, and now they fall asleep. <laughs> yes, yes. And it's just like breathing, mm. right? It's mm. it's integrated with our system. And if we are depriving ourselves for something that God designed us for, uh, I think we're going against the holiness of this mm. temple. We're not taking care of the temple as supposed to. Uh, I believe that the conflict that we have is that we live in a society that everything is 24 seven mm -hmm. it's yeah. open all the time everything is uh, ready to go all the time like we order something on amazon and the next day is in your door right you know? so we are pushed to be in the society that everything needs to be fully operated mm -hmm. operating 24 7 but our body is not designed like this mm. and i i i love to remind people also that when God finished the creation, he rested. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Full <laughs> day to rest. Right. <laughs> right. So why we are not doing the same. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Especially when you, you look at people who are um, like Orthodox Jews and the way they keep the Sabbath. I mean, some of them don't even turn a light switch on, you know? <laughs> yes. Yes. They are honoring that day that God took to rest mm. to do the same thing for themselves. Yeah. And they are honoring God for that. So if we think that we cannot sleep seven hours a night mm -hmm. because we're not, we're being selfish by sleeping seven hours a night, that's, um, that's a cultural shift that needs to change. Mm. So, I mean, yeah, sleep is, is obviously biologically necessary 
so is food. Um, and yet it's a tradition in the church to fast from food, you know, whether it's just abstaining from meat or, or more serious fast. Um, can we fast from sleep? You know, why, why, why one and not the other? Uh, and I, I love this question. And like, we see some points in the Bible that Jesus was awake praying, uh-huh. right? And he asked John, Peter, and, and James to stay awake with them and they fall asleep. Yeah. And it was <laughs> huge. <laughs> this huge thing, like, oh my gosh, you couldn't stay awake and pray with me. Right. It so kind of puts that pressure on us. I like, should be sleeping or should be praying, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but again, thinking about sleep as a physiological function, just like breathing, uh, we cannot stop breathing, right? Without having right. a constant. Right, right. You can't fast from oxygen. <laughs> yes. Like, we can fast from food and then we're going to eat and compensate for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But we fast for sleep, we have a sleep deprivation period. Yeah. You can sleep the next day, but you cannot gain that night that you lost. Mm. Yeah. Well, and I mean, I also, I mean, now that intermittent fasting is a really popular health trend, a lot of people it's interesting. They say they have actually cognitive benefits and anti-aging benefits from, from fasting, but it seems like the complete opposite when you have sleep deprivation. Yes. Yes. You're actually going to age faster if you don't sleep well. Right. (laughs) Do you think it, I don't know how to phrase this, but do you think that we have sort of a moral obligation to, to do these things? I mean, in some ways, it's tr- it's tricky to talk about this because then people can start to get scrupulous and say like, "Oh no, I'm sinning by like not taking care of my sleep." But do you think there's a moral component to it? If that makes sense. Yes, that makes sense, and um, I I like to compare this uh, with the the life of some saints, mm. like for example, um, some Francis de Sales. They he. We know that from from the his history that he slept five hours a night. Yeah. Song Jong VNA, he slept four hours a night. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> we look at them and say, Well, I'm sleeping eight hours. Right. I'm, I'm not gonna become a saint. Right. That's so I wanted to remind from a scientific standpoint that some people are short sleepers, hmm. that their physiology is different, that they can function well and have the same benefits with last time. Hmm. But that is a very small fraction of the population, right? Yeah. We are more likely to be like Saint uh, Therese of Lisieux that she would try to, to meditate and fall asleep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We are more likely to be right, like her, right? Some right? Therese. So, like, um, I I would say, is our moral obligation to take care of the temple that we have, that is our body, because the Holy Spirit lives on it. Yeah. So, uh, think about how Jesus got into the synagogue and start throwing people away that <laughs> they were not respecting the temple. Right. Right. And it was just a physical temple. Imagine our body that the Holy Spirit is dwelling with us all the time. Mm-hmm. We have the moral obligation to eat well, to um, exercise, to keep this temple working and the sleeping is part of that. Right. Yeah. Well, and it's funny because you mentioned the story of in the in the garden where Jesus is awake praying, the disciples are falling asleep. But we see the reverse of it earlier on when Jesus is sleeping in the boat and the disciples are all awake and they're like, what are you doing? You know? 
Yes, yes. So um, we need to have the discernment to understand when it's appropriate to fast for that mm. and, and to stay awake in prayer, right? Yeah. We need to understand when Jesus is calling us to do that. Right. In the boat, he was not calling for that. <laughs> right, right. But in spite of the storm that was going on and how much frightened they were, um, fearing for their lives, Jesus was not calling for that. He was calling for calmness and relaxation mm. because he was taking care of everything. Mm. Yeah. And in the garden, he he knows that death was imminent mm -hmm. and he knows what he's going to go through. So he was calling for prayer at that moment. So we need to be open for to understand the difference of in those times, right. in the different seasons that we go through our lives too, and make sure that we are listening to God's call and following it. Right, right. I mean that makes sense. You know, I mean, yeah, if you're if your kid comes in the middle of the night and they're they're sick, you know, you're not gonna say, Well, I gotta get my eight hours, like go back to bed. <laughs> Exactly. So it's a different call. It's a different season. And um, I I really appreciate how many times in the Bible Jesus communicates and God communicates with us through a dream. Mm, yeah, so, that's so true. Yeah, you're yeah. right. <laughs> so if it wasn't something important, we are not be sleeping. It's right. just so <laughs> random, right? That's so true. I never put that together, but I mean, yeah, there, it just shows how it's, it's a God ordained thing, you know? Yes. Yes. That's how I like to see it. That's beautiful. Okay. I think that's the perfect way to end this. Um, Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me and answer all of my questions. I know that my listeners are going to love this. Um, if they want to follow you or follow your work, um, where can they, uh, get in touch with you? Oh, thank you so much, Mary Rose. Um, this was a great conversation. I, I'm, I feel very inspired to talk about faith in yeah. sleep. Yeah. I not always have this opportunity, so I appreciate your invitation. Absolutely. And for anybody that wants to, um, know more about sleep, they can follow me on Instagram, um, at, uh, Dr. Wise Sleep Education. Okay. Fantastic. All right. Well, have a wonderful rest of your day. And I hope you have a restful night's sleep too. <laughs> Thank you. Same to you. All right. God bless.